Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Law Junkie Show. Last week, November the 1st through the 4th, was week 9 of the Elizabeth Holmes trial. Some of the witnesses in this case have been in a position to reveal maybe just slightly less than flattering pieces of information about themselves regarding their roles at Theranos. For example, take Dr. Lynette Sawyer, who worked as the lab director for six months without ever meeting Elizabeth Holmes or stepping foot in the lab she was hired to oversee. Now, some might say, well, she was only there six months before she quit and realized something was off. And others might say she was there for an entire six months collecting a paycheck for simply signing papers for a lab she never saw before she finally realized something was off. Some would say that agreeing to sign anything without seeing the lab is questionable, kind of maybe unethical. Now, she's obviously not the one on trial here, so she's protected. That means if in the future she believed she was not hired for a position, or let's say she thinks she was let go of a position due to what she divulged on the stand, could she take legal action? That is a very interesting proposition because typically if you're not hired for something you have legal recourse if it is based on a protected category a protected category is something like age you can't have age discrimination gender sex discrimination is illegal in hiring nationality that's a protected category religion is a protected category your truthfulness about how you've done a previous job is not a protected category. She would need one of the protected categories to have been violated for her to pursue a claim against an employer for not hiring her. Now, once you've been hired and you're terminated, that's a different set of circumstances. So, If she gets hired at a new job, for example, and three months in or six months in, they terminate her saying, oh, we found out that you were basically committing fraud, basically not saying that you are a fraud or that you did commit fraud, but you committed something that looks like fraud because you were signing off on documents when you never even viewed or visited the lab. That looks bad. That to us shows a pattern of conduct that we don't see as fitting our company. So in states like California, we have at-will employment, and depending on what her employment contract said, they would potentially be able to terminate her upon discovering that information. So Ms. Sawyer is potentially going to have a hard time getting a job if a future employer is worried about the fact that she was signing documents for six months as the person overseeing the lab and responsible for the lab 
and never visited the lab. This could potentially damage her future employment opportunities. Roger Parloff is the American journalist who wrote the Fortune magazine article about Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos that was so glowing, some investors say the article greatly influenced their decision to get on board investing with Theranos. For the record, Parloff would eventually write an article entitled, How Theranos Misled Me. Ahead of Roger Parloff taking the stand, the defense asked that he turn over his notes from the original article about Theranos. Now, wouldn't that be protected by the First Amendment? A magistrate judge had already denied this request, and they filed another motion through Judge Davila, asking again for these notes. Was this an example of the defense trying to really show how hard they're working and doing their job as tough lawyers when they ask for things or object to things that seem obvious that they will be denied? Interestingly enough, this isn't as clear cut as you think it is. And there are two parts to your question. So let's start with the first one. Does a reporter have a First Amendment protection over their notes from interviews or writing an article? And the the landmark goes back to 1972, Brandsburg v. Hayes. There were actually, I think, three cases that the Supreme Court heard, but the Supreme Court split regarding constitutional privilege for reporters. It's so the when when it's a split ruling like that, that means it is not binding precedent that controls all future lower court decisions. So it was split, and what has happened is there's common law which is the underpinning of our our legal system is English common law and that where journalists do have protection based on our First Amendment. And then individual states have passed their own laws as well, recognizing reporters' privilege. So various states have various laws on the books regarding this. And sometimes Supreme Courts in states like the state of Washington recognized qualified privilege in civil cases and then later criminal cases that there's a reporter's privilege. But there's not a federal law clearing this. So it is highly disputed. And that's why you'll see cases where the federal government will attempt to force a New York Times reporter, for example, to divulge their sources. And it goes to court and it gets battled out. And I do want to point out that both sides of the aisle, Republicans and Democrats alike, have tried to pass a federal law to shield reporters. You will be surprised, potentially, that when he was a U.S. representative, Mike Pence tried to pass a law to protect reporters. Um, In 2017, Republican Representative Jim Jordan, along with Democratic Representative Jamie Raskin, people who normally are at each other's throats, worked together to try to renew and create a new bill with similar elements to protect reporters. But it's not a blanket protection. And so in this case, what you described is the standard discovery process, which is if I believe the other side needs to produce documents to me, I file a request with the magistrate, which is a different judge from the district court judge and magistrates. We talked about this in an earlier episode will hear these types of discovery requests and rule on them. 
And if the parties don't agree with the magistrate's ruling, which is what exactly it sounds like happened here, then you can go to the district court judge to see if they will overrule the magistrate. And so you're appealing to the district court judge, Judge Davila in this case, saying, hey, the magistrate got it, got it wrong, and I want these reporter's notes. And Judge Davila said, no, the magistrate didn't get it wrong. Now, to the second part of your question, is this just the defense team, the defense counsel, kind of puffing up and saying, look at how great I am to Elizabeth Holmes? No. This is also an important thing. Remember, it is incumbent on the attorneys to... to pursue every avenue and that is to preserve their right to appeal so if they believe this is something that's appealable also this could potentially be to cya um, to protect themselves against malpractice suits if uh if they lose and elizabeth Holmes says they didn't give me good you know counsel they didn't do their job they can say look we did our job we made every argument for you witness for the prosecution referred to in court by the initials B.B. was scheduled to take the stand on Thursday, November the 4th. This witness, B.B., was a patient of Theranos who had received puzzling results from his Theranos lab blood test. We did not hear from this witness for the prosecution after all. Why? The prosecution? Oops, they listed the wrong test that B.B. took on their court papers. What happened here? But also, why isn't this slight error easy to fix and just move on? It sounds like barely worse than a typo. And while, yes, this does look bad for the government, and yes, they did already lose the Theranos database information, but why is this enough to derail having this witness testify? This is the judge's domain. So Judge Davila is in control of this. And it is his discretion to allow modifications to things like a witness list. Um, if the basis for calling the witness, we don't have full visibility, by the way, into exactly what was ruled on here and what the justification was for the ruling. We just don't know. So we're speculating a bit here. I'm speculating a bit here. If it's just that BB was supposed to testify and it was based on they took a pregnancy test versus a whatever, a vitamin D deficiency test, you would normally think that that would be something that the judge would say, look, we're going to let that go and you can still call BB to the stand. But it could be something that was much bigger where the prosecution said, well, BB took a pregnancy test and it said negative and she tested and she really was pregnant and it caused all these problems because of it. But oh, oops, no, BB just had a vitamin D deficiency test that had no bearing on BB's you know, outcome in life in any way, shape or form. We don't know that. So, but, but often for minor errors, judges will let that slide and say, that's okay. My understanding is that, well, first of all, BB is a male. Uh, but additionally, it looks like what they were arguing is it, it was a specific kind of blood count test or a specific blood test. So there, may, there, obviously, there are several different kinds of blood test, and he took one, but they listed another. So understandable mistake, I, I guess. I mean, you know, it's not. It's annoying. They should have done better. But at the same time, do you think that that warrants uh, this comment from the defense that 
they didn't, they don't even understand their own case. She said that they don't even understand their own case. Well, would you go that far? Well, again, it really depends on the detail here. If BB was supposed to be some kind of a star witness because it was a white blood cell count that indicated cancer that was false and really BB didn't have cancer and BB had acted, you know, selling off all investments, selling property, telling everybody to go screw themselves. I've got three months left to live and I'm going to die and yet didn't have cancer because of a bad test result. That's very different. So again, some of that detail will matter, but to make that comment, yeah, that seems, you know, strong. And Judge Davila will let counsel know typically if they're going too far and will say, you know, counsel strike that, you know, whatever that is the judge though. So this seems like it was significant enough that Judge Davila wouldn't have just said, hey, look, that was an error. Resubmit the paperwork and BB can testify. So this seems like it was a big enough deal that the prosecution messed up that Judge Davila is like, nope, now BB is not going to testify. That seems pretty significant. How do they recover from this again? Well, they recover because they have dozens of other witnesses. And so remember, now it's going to matter if you're... If you're charging Elizabeth Holmes, which she has been charged with, with wire fraud against patients, then I have to have patients who are testifying to the fraud that allegedly was committed. And if this keeps happening with other patient witnesses for the prosecution, it will be a problem. If there are 23 other cases of patients testifying, one going away might not be a big deal. Apparently, this ruling imperils one of the 12 charges brought against Elizabeth. Well, that would be the wire wire fraud against patients then, if it imperils one. We did hear from Daniel Mosley last week, the estate lawyer for former Secretary of State Henry Kissinger, who vetted Theranos for investing and also invested $6 million of his own personal dollars. The judge in this case, Judge Edward Davila, suggested to the defense, specifically Lance Wade, that they were just taking too long to question the prosecution's witnesses. I mean, essentially, the prosecution was getting in there and asking the questions and moving on. But it seemed that defense was really dragging it out and taking their time to the annoyance of Judge Davila. This is a highly competent defense. Therefore, it's not likely that taking a long time is due to inefficiency on their part. What's the strategy here? Yeah, this is definitely a strategy. And the strategy is to confuse the jury. It is truly to, I'm going to ask a lot of questions that seem extraneous. And that's why Judge Davila is probably right. To say, look, you're going to have to do a better job of getting to the point. What are you doing here, counsel? You're wasting the court's time. And it is likely a strategy on the part of the defense. And it's not a bad strategy. You can disagree with it. And you can hate the defense because you hate Elizabeth Holmes. But as far as defense counsel goes, if the judge is going to let you get away with it, of course you want to drag it. Of course you want to ask a lot of questions because you want to dilute whatever the witness might have said that is bad for the defense. And so it is absolutely a strategy to confuse, to dilute, to obfuscate the issues at hand to make it seem like it's not beyond a reasonable doubt that the prosecution has presented evidence on all of the elements of the alleged 
crimes against Elizabeth Holmes. Any idea how this became a strategy? Did somebody research psychology or the human attention span or how being overloaded with information affects the ability to make decisions? How did this become a thing? I don't know the history of it, but I will say that there's likely a jury consultant who definitely has a background in, well, definitely, I would strongly assume has a background in psychology and is talking about, wow, this is a 13-week case. There's so much overwhelming information. How do I make it so much? There is indication or studies that have shown that excessive amounts of information will cause people to lose belief in their conviction, for example. And we know this from propaganda and gaslighting and all these other techniques that are used in other parts of life, that those things do work. So a likely a jury consultant, very likely a jury consultant, and or just the experience of the defense counsel, having worked with many different juries over the years and on complex cases, they also don't necessarily need a jury consultant if they already know this and believe it to be true. If they are working with people like psych- like a psychologist and a jury consultant who understands human behavior, could they take it one step further and actually work with a professional who could teach the defense how to plant hypnotic suggestions to the jury? Would that be legal and or ethical? I'm not aware of a law against using suggestive techniques with a jury. Whether or not it's ethical, I would suggest it's probably not ethical because the you're supposed to use the evidence and the testimony to convince the jury one way or the other. However, I would suggest that there is significant amounts of psychology and NLP that is employed because we're, if you're on the defense, your job is to protect your client and to give a vigorous, vigorous defense and advocate in the strongest way that is legally possible for your client. And that is, and especially in a criminal case, you're talking about taking away somebody's liberty and our our system is set up and we have a sixth amendment to our constitution protecting your rights when you're charged with a criminal offense and the government can put you away. So legally, I don't know of anything against it. Ethically, I think people would argue that it's maybe not ethical, but I think that's up to the individual. Thank you for listening to Law Junkies Show. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and on YouTube. Write us a review on Apple Podcasts if you like what you hear. Follow us on social media. We're on all the platforms. And visit us at lawjunkieshow.com. You can send us a message there on the contact form or at info at lawjunkieshow.com. We love your suggestions, your comments, your questions, and your ideas for upcoming episodes. Disclaimer, Law Junkie Show, including its guests and hosts, are not giving out legal advice, but discussing general legal issues. Law Junkie Show does not guarantee that the legal issues discussed are fully accurate, and it's not specific to whatever legal issues you may be experiencing. None of this advice is to be acted upon in your situation. Please seek legal advice from a licensed attorney in your jurisdiction for your individual legal matter.